I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. Kate Guy is a DPhil candidate in international relations at the University of Oxford, where she studies the intersection of climate change, national security, and global governance. She is also a senior research fellow with the Center for Climate and Security in Washington, D.C., and serves as deputy director of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, really happy to be with you guys. And just to say, I'm I'm doing this in my personal capacity, so not on behalf of any of those organizations, but really happy to, to chat. Yeah, well, we're so excited to talk to you on this really important topic. If you were to implement one major policy change to help fight climate change, what would that policy change be? The problem with climate change is that there is no silver bullet. Um, even if you had a magic wand, I think it would be very hard to to wave it and get everything we need to have happen happen just because it's such an all of the economy, all of the world problem. So I'm going to go a bit more narrow with my answer to this, I guess. If I had my own magic wand of the policy, it would actually be to insert climate experts into every and onto every decision-making table, uh, office um, of every Fortune 500 company, of every uh, sort of decision made in the White House, made in governments around at the local level, around the world. I would want there to be a climate expert, somebody who knows the problem, knows what's happening, knows the models, knows everything, part of those discussions. It seems really simple that you would sort of take climate into account, uh, but so often the issue is siloed away from a lot of the, the big decisions that are being made. And uh, that's the problem. That's why we haven't really done enough to address the problem. I think that's interesting because... I one of the things that I focus on is cybersecurity and technology, and they often say the same thing, that there are too few cyber and tech people in the room. And I just imagine these decision-making trees becoming more and more complex <laughs> as we bring in all these different actors. You know, what does this do to cybersecurity? How does this impact climate? How do we think about this with human rights? How do you see bringing climate voices into the room as being actually effective at lobbying entrenched interests, especially when it comes to, you know, DOD and State Department who have other priorities that might be ahead of climate. Yeah, well, I can, I guess I can answer that on two levels. But first, let me say, yeah, you're definitely right on, on cybersecurity. And I find a lot of the time in my research on the intersection of climate and national security, I find myself looking to the cyber literature or, or smart folks in the cyber realm to answer those problems because they sort of were there first, right? How do we deal with this borderless, often actorless threat that's evolving sort of much more rapidly and a much more rapid curve than we thought it would? But they're actually quite similar in, in terms of how you want to think about it and how you want to restructure things to deal with that kind of threat. But what would it do? So the first thing that I have sort of been uh, struck by working in this field, and I come from a, a climate background working in the sort of UN process of climate negotiations and, and that side of the, the ledger, coming more into the national security side of the field, I realize that there are a lot of people who are very senior, making really high, high, big decisions um, in many parts of, of the world, not just the government, 
who really don't know anything about climate change, right? You've never had to take a class on it in school. You never had to, you know, what's the IPCC? I don't know what that stands for, let alone what they are telling us about. You know, it's like the, the level of literacy is quite low particularly, I would say, the older the generation of the person that they are, um, because it's even further removed from probably what they got in school. So the first problem is that um, they might, you know, see climate, think of polar bears, think of environmentalists, and that sort of it, and not understand how actually the agricultural decision they're making has huge ramifications for the climate, and the climate will have huge uh, sort of issues for those decisions and all the way down the road. It's especially when you're thinking about threats, if you're not even looking at a variable that's really important for the decision you're making, you don't know what questions to ask, you don't know sort of what to think about, um, you're probably overlooking really important things. So the reason I would want sort of people who understand that at the table is because they're able to much more subtly sort of say, oh, have you thought about this thing from a resilience perspective? Or what about this from a, a carbon mitigation perspective? Or you might be really vulnerable to these sorts of threats that you hadn't thought about. And they don't have to obviously be a part of every single conversation, but much like cyber, if you're not talking about it, you're probably not safeguarding all of your systems that need to be safeguarded. Or at least perhaps even if there's not an expert at the table, everybody is well will be eventually well-versed enough in some of the basics that they kind of know what red flags to look out for. Hopefully. And it's, I mean, Grant, in your question, you sort of talked about advocacy. I'm not even talking about advocacy, right? I mean, I think that that is important and that also needs to be part of conversations, but it doesn't need to be like a sunrise movement sort of activist at all of these tables, though they often know a lot more than than others, but it just needs to be a, a scientist or somebody who understands the data and understands the issues. Now, those people often become advocates because there's nothing being done on these issues and it's really really hard to work in them uh, when things are so grim. But yeah, it's not it's not a sort of advocacy situation. It's just what are you missing? What are you not taking into account? I want to back up a little bit on the connections between climate change and national security. Shortly after taking office, President Biden issued an executive order that firmly declared climate change as a national security and foreign policy threat. I'm wondering if you can sort of connect the dots for us there a little bit more clearly. Like, what exactly are the national security risks that are posed by climate change? Yeah, so this was, as you say, a a big deal. So within Biden's first week in office, uh, the president issued a massive executive order basically on on climate change and, and everything sort of foreign policy and national security, as you say. And it's really been the, the sort of blueprint for what the administration has been doing even months later, right? Sort of what it's prioritizing, what it's, it's taking into account was sort of all in that first week effort, which was just amazing. You can tell there are a lot of people working for many months before that moment to, to get that all lined up. The reason why it was so big was because it did exactly what you say, which is they declared that climate change is a top priority foreign policy and national security issue. That seems obvious. It seems obvious, definitely, if you've watched this administration and sort of the things that it's doing, the decisions it's making. But that was not obvious before, right? The last four years, climate change was nowhere near the top priorities that our uh, diplomats or defense leaders were working on. I would say even in the Obama administration, you know, he really cared about climate and, and made that one of his legacy issues. But I don't think if you ever sort of talk to people in the Department of Defense in the Obama White House, they would say that was a top priority. And just that prioritization, just saying every agency needs a plan talking about how climate will affect its work, 
we're going to create uh, new new roundtables where each cabinet official has to come and talk about what they're doing on climate and what they're doing for resilience and those sorts of things. Just that sort of bureaucracy of government and prioritization of government made a huge difference right off the bat, right? Clearly, there was a political heft here. Clearly, this was something really important to the president, and that has moved a lot of agencies. Now, why is this so important, which is really what you're asking? Why does it need to be a top foreign policy or national security issue? The first really answer to that is because there is no part of national security that does not intersect in some ways with the ravages of our changing climate. So a lot of people use the term threat multiplier to talk about climate change, right? Every threat that we're sort of dealing with right now, anywhere in the world on the ground, is probably going to become multiplied because of the effects of of changing climate. So one good example is uh, there was really sort of depressing documented evidence about how ISIS actors on the ground were using climate change as a recruitment tool. So saying to farmers whose livelihoods had been sort of ravaged because of drought and weather extremes, saying, look at this, this is the West that's doing this to you, we will take care of you, come in and join our movement and you can sort of fight back against this, right? So clearly that multiplied an existing threat on the ground that we were talking about. But even beyond the multiplication of these threats, there are new and emerging threats that we never would have thought about before, like risks of geoengineering, risks of the compounding nature that, you know, you had a typhoon, but what if you have a typhoon in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a, a electrical outage, in the middle of all of these things sort of intersecting, which can compound threats in ways that we probably would have underestimated uh, just even a few years ago. So. From a security perspective, each plan, each strategy, each sort of mission that uh, a national security actor is undertaking is going to in some way be affected by the vast majority of things that, that are sort of out of whack now that the climate is changing as rapidly as it is. And that is something we're seeing more and more, unfortunately, each year. Aside from embedding climate experts across department and agencies, What do you think, say, the Department of Defense or the IC, the intelligence community, needs to do to adapt to meet challenges posed by climate change? Yeah, I mean, there's a long list. So where where do we start? Um, So the prioritization that I talked about is the first step, right? You need prioritization across the department, every combatant command, right? Every general needs to be looking at how are are these things affecting us? And they're starting to do this. I'm having great conversations on sort of my research side with people saying, okay, how do we integrate this into our existing plans, strategies, capabilities? Do we need a different force posture in in some places because of climate? And and more importantly, what is our development strategy in a lot of these areas? Because we're not going to, and we shouldn't think we can, address climate problems with the military, right? That's not their job. It's the job of building resilience in a lot of these spaces? How can uh, DOD work with USAID, for example, in a US capacity to be anticipating the changes that are coming and thinking about, oh, maybe we need a a better agricultural development program on the ground in that region to bolster the changing sort of weather dynamics there. So that's one side. The Department of Defense as well is one of the biggest emitters in the entire world, just on its own, if it were its own state. So they are increasingly thinking about how can we develop the next generation energy technology 
both to, you know, green the DOD, if you want to think about it like that, but more importantly, so that they have the top, the emerging technologies that are sort of bred in-house and used by our military around the world, that has a huge advantage for the US as well. If you don't have to, you could be cutting sort of energy supply lines and things like that because you have solar power, wind power, or next generation biofuel power powering our troops around the world. One of the ways that I often get frustrated in conversations about these types of issues is that everything has trade-offs and prioritizing climate means deprioritizing other things. We don't have an unlimited supply of money or manpower, even though at times DOD may seem like we do. So how do you think about prioritizing climate when we have other big dragons to slay, whether that's human rights in China, whether that's shifting from a terrorism mission to a great power mission, disinformation. There are so many problems that we're putting on the national security plate. How do you think about where to rank climate among them? Well, all of those issues that you just said all have massive climate dimensions. So even just right there, disinformation is a huge one. I just heard uh, the other day this amazing new account that somebody in New York, when the last big hurricane was coming from New York this summer, uh, heard from a buddy of his that it was China and a bunch of big other uh, nations that were building giant fans and blowing the air to create hurricanes off the East Coast to harm the United States, right? Totally crazy. I'm not saying there is any merit to that. That's uh, really bonkers. But that's climate disinformation, right? And that's climate disinformation in a national security sense, right? That there is an adversary of ours that uh, that we are blaming. That could even go even further in, in looking at uh, some of the disinformation that Russia has been accused of around the migration crisis in Syria in 2015, right? Climate events themselves, because they are so huge and devastating, can be huge seeding grounds for disinformation and can really add to and, and exacerbate the lack of trust in government and, and that sort of thing when you yourself you know, have your livelihood upended because of these disasters. Same with human rights. There are huge human rights implications of these sorts of things, as well as of the authoritarians that try to take advantage of disasters for accumulation of power, for crackdown on the opposition, all of that. And beyond just sort of seeing the climate dimensions of the existing issues that are on the plate, in terms of prioritization, it's actually really easy. Everything gets much more expensive the longer we wait. The cost that it would be to make our cities resilient, make our defense operations resilient, whatever you want to think, the cost to make those changes now pales in comparison to the cost when that system is overloaded because of the climate event. If we aren't being smart about our money now and how we're spending that money now, we are going to be stuck at least with the bill down the road. And that's going to be our generation, right? We're no longer in a situation where we can push this out very far. The sticker price just of the natural disasters the past few years that DOD has had to deal with is very, very large. So why wouldn't you spend a bit of money now to build resilience, to transition these systems, uh, to build the future that we need that is going to protect us? Uh, That sounds like a pretty high priority in my book. It was interesting to me that that just recently China announced that it would not be building any new coal fire power projects abroad as you know part of the Belt and Road Initiative and 
other work abroad. I'm curious, should we take that commitment at face value as a good faith effort to uh, make a commitment to reducing environmental damage? Or is there something else going on? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, that was that was the big announcement of of China uh, at the UN last week, and for good reason. It's a it's a commitment people, especially in the sort of international climate space, have been pushing for for a long time. Right? There have been financing billions of dollars towards building out coal capacity and, and other dirty capacity around the world for as long as Belt and Road has been a thing. However, if you look at the sort of graph of amount of sort of emissions from that coal power that they're building out in other countries compared to the new coal power that's coming online in China every day. It's a huge gap, right? The amount that China is bringing on board, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but is just many, many times what it's building abroad. So it's great. It's really important for them to make that commitment. And you ask if it's at face value from the people that I speak to. Yes, you know, they really do care about fulfilling that commitment. And it seems that financially, they've already started to make moves to fulfill that commitment, which is good. We need to go in that route. But the most important thing to zero in on is China's coal consumption itself. And not just China's, right? Every country. Australia is a huge laggard in this in this sense as well, um, and is also building out new coal capacity uh, with each year. So if we're not thinking, you know, not just what are you financing around the world, but what are you sort of bringing online new to the system, each day, that's that's a problem. And we can't sort of give them a big win in a climate sense and sort of look away from where all the, the big emissions are coming from. It's really hard to think about the problem stemming from developing countries. I know I don't particularly like putting China in that bucket, but China and India are huge producers of gases that increase climate change. I don't think the West is able to say, oh, we're, we were able to develop with a bunch of coal and be really dirty, but you guys have to do it in a very clean way and slow your development. How do you think about actually putting the screws to China and India and other developing countries to meet really difficult climate goals while also not condemning their populations to poverty. Yeah, I mean, this has been uh, the sort of, I don't know if it's a catch-22, but the the issue at the heart of international gridlock on climate change for as long as I've been alive. This has been the issue, right? If you are sort of new to this issue and you're like, why have we not solved this already? It seems pretty bad. It's because of this, right? Of the whole of economy power of fossil fuels is huge. And for a long time, the relationship between industrialization and economic development was seen as tied, right? Was seen as you are not able to grow your economy and and become a, a big, rich country unless you are sort of using these fuels. Now, the good thing is, in recent years, that relationship has been broken, right? You can see countries whose uh, emissions are declining rapidly and their economies are still growing rapidly. And those things are, are no longer entwined. The better way to think about this is not the West saying, developing world, you can't use these uh, technologies, which we all used. Um, that's never going to be a good thing. But instead, I like to think of it, you know, not even from China and India, but from an African nation, which is still struggling with electrification, right? And still has huge 
swaths of its population that it desperately wants to pull over that poverty line. Obviously, China and India as well, but but they're further along even than a lot of other developing nations. And you're exactly right. You know, we can't, as the West, who benefited from massive uh, spewing of <laughs> emissions, go to those countries and say that you know you are condemned forever to live without electricity. No. Instead, what needs to happen is is in those places we need to, as the West, a work with them and say, uh, much like Biden did in his UN speech a, a few weeks ago, pledge money, pledge development aid, pledge technical assistance to help those countries leapfrog over those dirty fuels. And this is entirely possible, even more so today, because the cost of solar technology, the cost of battery technology, the cost of wind is falling more and more every year and at par with those dirty technologies. So it makes good financial sense for for us to say, you know, let's not buy everyone uh, in the rest of the world uh, a fossil fuel emitting car, uh, internal combustion engine. Let's figure out the way to build a cheap, safe electrical vehicle and uh, an electrical grid, which is also clean to power all of that. And this might sound like pie in the sky wishful thinking, but this is more and more with each year sort of where these markets are going. I think it's the job of the West to help accelerate that and, and to help partner with developing countries to access those technologies. That's what they're asking for. They're no longer really asking for the dirty technologies. They're asking for help leapfrogging over those systems. Switching gears a little bit, you've written about the risks of a military confrontation in the Arctic due to a lot of factors, but one of them being environmental changes related to climate change. I'll be honest, I don't think that Arctic conflict is on most people's radars. It's certainly not something that I have come across all that often. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why this should be on our radar and and what role climate change plays in the possibility of conflict breaking out. The Arctic is, unfortunately, the fastest changing region of the entire world. Just because of of its latitude and, and where it is in the world, the temperatures that it is experiencing are many times more than sort of what we're experiencing in terms of warming. So that just means sort of what we're seeing happening there is potentially a sign of things to come in the rest of the world as it rapidly warms, uh, melts, sort of becoming much more navigable as an area, all the rest. So the reason to be worried about the Arctic is because it is essentially an ungoverned region. Unlike Antarctica, which has a treaty sort of dividing it up among countries and powers, there is no uh, one easy treaty governing the Arctic. There are a few sort of governance institutions like the Arctic Council, places where countries can come together and meet and talk about things. And and they've had good agreements in, in the past years. But there is no easy delineation of who gets what, essentially, in the Arctic. And that becomes a problem when the climate change variables that we care about make it a region of much more interest to a lot in the world. For shipping purposes, a ship going over an Arctic route could cut multiple weeks off of the time it takes to get goods from Asia to the West, for example, for tourism, for minerals, for lots of fossil fuels. Uh, also in that region, there is huge interest from a lot of industry to get up into the into the north. Also, uh, one that's often left off this list a lot is fish. Fish like cold waters, especially as the oceans warm, 
those fish stocks will migrate further and further north, which mean the fishermen that follow them that might be from another part of the world will also follow them too. So you basically have all eyes pointing north um, and a lot of people wondering about what's going to happen there. Now, I don't think there's going to be some big climate war <laughs> that strikes out in the Arctic. I don't, uh, I've done the research on this. I, we don't sort of find that as a, a big threat right now. What is the threat, I think, is that this is still a very uh, hostile region, environmentally hostile region. You also have great powers up there from Russia to uh, NATO countries uh, like Scandinavian countries, the US, China, increasingly Chinese presence there, Canada, lots of nations nearby um, and a really rapidly changing um, geography under their feet. So the potential for accident is huge. The potential for military sort of coming into play with each other is huge. Not that anyone would necessarily intend this, but things can go awry in really tough conditions um, in places that are very far flung from capitals, etc. Especially when you have sort of great powers increasingly aggressive with each other in other parts of the world as well as in the Arctic. So what we find as sort of likely is that climate change could be one of those sparks. The, the impacts of climate that we're talking about from sort of melting permafrost, uh, damaging nuclear facilities up there to there's a, a long litany of, of potential sparks. They're just things we need to take into account when we're thinking of the Arctic. And I'll tell you, countries increasingly are, are sending military resources to that region. Are they doing so with climate change in mind? And is that something we even want to be doing? Or do we want to be building spaces for dialogue and building sort of areas that are off limits for, for military intervention or those sorts of things. This is a very open live issue of debate. How do we get people to pay attention to these types of issues? I mean, certainly, you know, the relevance of climate change to the Arctic is a very specific one, but I'm curious for your thoughts more generally about the ways in which we, we try to get the public to, to really sort of absorb the challenges. And, you know, this is sort of top of mind because I just recently sort of became aware of this whole new genre of fiction known as cli-fi, which, you know, for those who don't maybe know, it's, it's sort of a version of science fiction that is in particular uh, imagining a, a future world in which we haven't managed to reduce carbon emissions. And I've both found that as a genre to be really intriguing, maybe also sort of alarmist, but do you think that's an effective technique of getting people to sort of wake up and pay attention? And would that work in the context of Arctic climate or, or is it really most suited for problems that are even closer to home? Yeah, this is tough. And I'll, I'll tell you, like there is decades at this point of research that's been done. That's how do we communicate climate in a way that people will care about? And I love any type of art that is, is talking about the climate sort of future or present or whatever, I'll sort of be the first one like in the gallery if it's like a climate exhibit um, or buying tickets to the show. Sometimes they're like really crazy <laughs> and avant-garde, but I'm still here for it. And yeah, I mean, I think anything that can sort of make it present, much like dystopian fiction is able to do to show our current vulnerabilities, right? And like point the finger at the seeds of dystopia that are being planted now, I think is really important. But Honestly, I see this night and day. I've, I've been teaching at Oxford um, these past few years as I do my PhD. I actually see a really sea change happening um, with Gen Z, with millennials, as we no longer see this as like a future dystopian 
problem, but as something we're living with. You can see that here in the States with people all across the country who are, with each passing year, facing more extreme events that they themselves have to deal with, right? That's burning down their home or that's drying up their livelihood, farmers in the Midwest, whatever it might be. It's no longer this sort of day after tomorrow, future crazy thing when literally the New York City subway is flooding. Now that's just a present problem we have to deal with. So it's sort of a sad answer, I guess. But as these events become more frequent and more intense, and as unfortunately politicians still don't do anything about them, I think that is the the spark that's really getting populations, especially young people, really fired up. And that is what will change political dynamics, right? Even that this past election, 2020, the German election uh, just the other day, climate was the top issue. Uh, that voters were voting on, that sort of uh, changing spirit is is what will change things, as well as just the impacts themselves, right? Uh, the reason climate is a top national security issue is because it's impacting national security. <laughs> it's not because of advocates saying it should be. It's because we are sort of dealing with the effects. Luckily, I think that we sort of have a narrow window to still do something about a lot of these problems. And I think the sort of political awareness the generational awareness is coming online right in time to hopefully sort of change those priorities. If folks want to dip into Cli-Fi, <laughs> I would suggest the Reminiscence movie that just came out yes. uh, recently yeah. on HBO. It just depicts a Miami that is completely waterlogged, which is just very different than maybe some other dystopian futures you might see definitely and they're living alongside it right sorry to, to jump in there but it's like climate is just like the backdrop you know there's a whole other plot going on there but they have to adapt and their lives just go on even though it's flooded yeah no totally and i i think but something that that sort of seems like it comes out of the science fiction era but is something people are actually talking about is an idea about geoengineering where we attempt to spray chemicals into the air to dim the sun. If I were a country that was small, that was worried about the impacts of climate, I would honestly be considering it because there's not a lot you know you can do to mitigate it if you are a small island country, especially in the Pacific. How do you think about this from sort of a, a science lens? Like, is this actual science? Is this something that will happen? And then from sort of a U.S. policy lens, if someone else attempts to do this and attempts to change the climate single-handedly, how should we react? How should we think about that as an international problem? Sure, yeah. So geoengineering, the sort of concept you introduced I'm also, again, sort of often surprised of how few people, especially people you would think are thinking about this issue, uh, know what this is or sort of uh, reading this. And it's totally, as you say, in the sort of wacky science uh, annals and and journals, but increasingly um, a really big problem. So the term sort of covers a range of things. It covers, you know, doing different things to groundwater, uh, to engineer that such that you can better access different uh, types of groundwater. That's obviously geoengineering we should probably do, particularly in the, in the Southwest, to uh, messing with the atmosphere or throwing a bunch of chemicals into the ocean or seeding clouds to, to make them uh, rain or make them brighter, to reflect back sun, all the rest. Uh, there's, there's a wide range of technologies here. And they're potential technologies because very infrequently have they been tested 
And we really, really, I will stress this, do not know often the ramifications of a lot of these technologies, right? Like we don't know what the downstream effects are. The probably single biggest question mark when it comes to climate science is clouds. We uh, are only just beginning to understand sort of that atmospheric variable and dynamic of how clouds move and, and how they interact and sort of trying to predict um, uh, where they're going. It's a huge field of research. So all of a sudden thinking about messing with them from a human perspective, <laughs> in my mind, is very scary, right? If we really don't know if you seed clouds over Africa, does that cause a typhoon in the Pacific? Um, we don't know. And to me, that right there is the biggest national security threat. Because as we talked about earlier with sort of disinformation and, and that realm, so often after these horrible disasters, people are looking to blame, right? They're looking for, why did this happen to me? Why is my entire life sort of ripped apart? And from a national security perspective, the minute a geoengineering technology is used, particularly if it's used by a Western country or, or not, every country around the world can forever after point the blame at that country for anything that befalls it. Even if that's not true, even if you can't prove it, even if we don't know, you will always be able to say that this crazy drought might have been sort of affected by that. I think we're already seeing like really early signs of this with COVID disinformation, right? Of random sort of things happening. Why can't you say that that has to do uh, with this global pandemic or the vaccine or whatnot, right? It's just, it's really easy to sort of see these conspiracies and, and doubt. So it's sort of a genie out of the bottle in that way of, of using these technologies. More importantly, uh, they are not governed, so there is no international treaty around the use of them. Most of them can be deployed unilaterally, can be deployed quite cheaply. There have been some instances of just sort of, again, wacky scientists, millionaires um, deploying a bunch of these off the coast of, of their mansions and seeing what the effects are. So I would probably argue for a two-pronged approach. Uh, of course, we should study them to the extent that we can in a very safe and very well-governed way so that we can sort of know when, when it comes down to it, uh, sort of the ramifications of a lot of these technologies. But more important, we need to be probably working towards agreements in a scientific capacity, in a multilateral capacity that just governs the use of these technologies, much like we do with our nuclear arsenal and, and other sort of technologies. Because the last thing we want is the description you say, which is just wayward use of, of things that we don't understand, but have huge planetary impact, potentially. Kate, the, I feel like the more I learn about climate change, the more, you know, the more sort of depressing it always is. And the more, uh, you know, it sort of feels like it's, it's a hopeless situation. I'm curious, what gives you hope in the climate arena? What, what can make us hopeful here? Yeah, well, uh, it is very depressing. This is why I don't personally read Cli-Fi because I feel like I spend my life in it. So it's not very uh, escapist if I'm just imagining all day uh, <laughs> security repercussions of all the stuff. Um, in terms of hope, I honestly don't really uh, struggle with that problem because I'm so often interacting with young people and with students who I don't know about, about you, but uh, when I was doing my undergraduate and master's degrees in international affairs, I felt like I was sort of the only person who cared about climate change, the only one who thought it was an interesting sort of great power question, all of the rest. These days, if you look at undergraduates, the young sort of Gen Z, climate change is all what they want to study. It's all what they want to work on. It's all what they sort of want to vote about. It's, it's just top, top of mind obviously the the sort of books and tv shows they want to consume right 
So when you see their passion and their sort of understanding that this is the top thing we we can do, it's almost like we just need to empower that and respond to that and get out of the way. And just the the technology is changing so rapidly. The trade-offs that Grant was talking about are quickly dying away because the problem is just so massive. Countries, it's really in their incentives increasingly from a national politics perspective or, or an international perspective to do something about it. And we really haven't had that before. We haven't had the Greta movement for more than a few years, right? We haven't had this massive sort of spotlight on the issue. So the hopeful thing, I think, is that, you know, when people see this as in their interest, when companies think they can uh, make money from transitioning, all the rest, I think that we're looking at a much brighter future than maybe even a few years ago. That is still to say, though, that, you know, climate is here. The climate has changed. It's going to keep changing until we radically change our behaviors. Hopeful, yes, but buckle up, I think, and uh, start thinking about what this means for any issue that you're working on, because it's going to intersect with it. On that hopeful slash depressing note, let's go to our final segment of the episode where we talk about something that we're following or thinking about this week. Zoe, why don't you lead us off? So I'm following the return of Survivor. The show is now in its 41st season and it just aired a week or two ago. They took um, a a sort of long hiatus for COVID. So it's nice to see it back on the air. And so far, it also seems like it might be a more physically demanding season than, than any in recent memory. So I think it'll be interesting to watch. I've been a Survivor fan for some time. Um, but, you know, I think it actually, the show kind of takes on a new meaning after a year of, of isolation, of sort of returning to basics, of going, you know, going back to our survival instincts. So it's even more sort of interesting to watch dynamics play out on screen, that in the backdrop. So would invite any other Survivor fans out there to, to get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely some climate change overtones to that show. There must be, right? There's got, there's got to be some good knowledge for like surviving disaster. Absolutely. And they, I mean, they're very much exposed to the elements. So I'm sure that over time, you know, that, that also has been influenced by climate changes since it's been on 20 years um, <laughs> by now. Kate, what are you following this week? Oh, I had to like rack my brain for trying to find something fun or or enlightening here. So the thing that really blew my mind today was on Twitter. I don't know if any of you follow. There's a great account called Space Porn. And it's not what you're thinking. It's it's just cool uh, photos of space uh, brought to you by NASA. (laughs) And there is this amazing image today that the Juno space probe, the one that's sort of going out uh, to Jupiter and exploring its moons, took of Jupiter. And it's just, it's incredible. I encourage you to all look at it. But it shows Jupiter's big red eye up close and the crazy storms that are happening on that planet. It's beautiful. It's really interesting. It's also, um, yeah, it shows you that maybe this planet is not as bad as it could be even in the solar system. There's there's even worse intense conditions somewhere else. And yeah, it's a little fun galactic escapism if you want that. This week, I'm thinking about what comes next in Europe following the elections in Germany. What I hope to see is a Germany that steps up and leads in Europe to take on the challenges both within its neighborhood and within sort of the broader Eurasia area. 
Hungary continues down its path to authoritarianism, Turkey is buying more weapons from the Russians, and the flow of refugees from the Middle East and North Africa is not stopping. As the United States pivots to Asia, we're unlikely to see major engagement on these issues. So we need Germany to step up and work with Europe to tackle these and other problems because the U.S. cannot and will not be everywhere at once. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Kate at Kate A. Guy. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Mecklenburg Western Pomerania, taking a bite out of world leaders one peck at a time. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.